Section 23 of Short Stories from Locomotive Engineers Journal, Volume 52. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Short Stories from Locomotive Engineers Journal, Volume 52, by Various. How the Scale Was Turned, by F. A. Mitchell. 1. Stefan Mikhailov left the Duma, where he had been working hard for days to bring about a change in the government which had endured without break for many centuries. Calling a drosky, he entered it telling the coachman to drive him to his home, and throwing himself back on the cushion behind him, closed his eyes and remained in a position denoting exhaustion till the vehicle drew up before his house on a broad avenue lining the Neva. Descending from the drosky, he paid the driver his fare and entered his home. He was met in the hall by his daughter Maria, a girl not long turned seventeen. Maria was a typical Russian. Her eyes were a pale blue, her complexion soft white with a faint tinge of rose, her hair so light that had it not been for her youthful face, it might have almost been mistaken for the whiteness of age. Oh, father, she said, I am so glad that you have come. Sergei Savanovich is in Petrograd, his regiment having arrived last night. He has been to see me and begs me to intercede with you to gain your consent to our betrothal. Why do you trouble me about this matter? replied the father angrily. At such a time. Do you not know that we are on the eve of a consummation of efforts that have been working for half a century to throw off the despotism which sucks the lifeblood of our people? Besides, it is impossible that you, the descendant of a long line of nobles, should unite with a commoner. But, Papa, are you not working for the cause of the people? Yes, but that is no reason why I should take one of the people into my family. Sergius is an officer, the youngest captain in his regiment. He was a common soldier in the ranks, and was promoted on account of his having more influence over his comrades than all the other officers of the regiment together. Enough. I have neither time nor inclination to argue with you on this point while engaged in the great work of pulling down the tottering bureaucracy. You know that the Tsar, aware of our efforts to free Russia, dissolved the representative assembly which we wrung from him in the last revolution. You know that we refused to be dissolved. This from the government's point of view is revolution, treason. Had the Tsar the power his predecessors had, every member of the Duma would either be sent to Siberia or executed. Even as it is, remember that your father is in jeopardy. If we succeed, we will free our country. If we fail, we will be prescribed. Our chains will be so riveted that the sledge of a titan cannot break them. But surely you will win. Not if the Tsar continues to pour troops into the capital. All autocratic governments are supported by bayonets. The officers are usually chosen from the aristocratic classes, and the officers control the men. When the war began, the bureaucracy controlled the appointment of officers and took care to appoint those upon whom they could rely to support the throne. Many of these officers have gone down in the struggle with the central powers, and their places have been filled by men from the people. It is to be supposed that the Tsar has concentrated such regiments in Petrograd as are officered by a superfluity of men upon whom he can rely. We are secretly arranging for a coup d'etat. Tomorrow morning, the people will turn out in the streets and demand food. Their clamour will increase till the troops are called upon to quell the disturbance. That will be the critical moment. The revolution will commence, 
and its success depends upon whether the troops can be relied on to shoot down the revolutionists. Now, my child, I must get some rest. I have not slept for two nights. Do not mention again the name of Captain Ivanovich. I will never consent to a union between you and any man who is not your equal in social rank. The father was about to turn away when the daughter stopped him. But, Papa, she said anxiously, is not this a too dangerous move in which you are engaged? What course will our generals at the front take? Will they not protect the Tsarina and her children with their lives? The Tsarina! cried Mikhailov angrily. It is this German woman who has brought about this grave crisis. She has been furnishing our enemies with information of our movements and our necessities. Through her influence, trains laden with our stores have been sent from west to east, instead of from east to west. In league with the detestable Rasputin, she has baffled the efforts of those very generals at the front who you are thinking may protect her. It is they who have called upon us here to bring about this revolution. They have arranged that the Tsar shall be arrested and forced to abdicate for himself and for his son. The members of the imperial family are to be held prisoners in the palace. The best men in Russia are watching and waiting to form a new government. While Mikhailov had been talking, Maria had been listening intently, at the same time thinking of her lover, who on the morrow would take part in this great movement, anxious both for him and her father. Stefan Mikhailov staggered upstairs to his room, and without removing his clothes, threw himself in the bed and was asleep the moment he touched it. A few minutes later, there was a summons at the street door, and Captain Ivanovich entered the house. Maria joined him immediately. "'Have you seen your father?' the captain asked anxiously. "'Yes,' replied Maria in a voice that trembled. "'He has refused his consent.' Maria ran over what her father had told her as to that which was expected to occur the next day. When she had finished, she asked her lover whether, when the revolution occurred, the troops would fire on the people. That is a matter of uncertainty. The men are in sympathy with the crowds they will be ordered to shoot down. Some of the officers are revolutionists, and some are loyal to the Tsar. This is the case in my regiment, and I believe it is true of the others, unless it may be some of the more aristocratic commanders, where the officers all support the bureaucracy. Success or failure depends upon whether the people or the bureaucracy can win over the troops on their side. 2. The next morning, there was a feeling in Petrograd that momentous events were to be enacted. For a long while, speculators had tied up food, or the railroads had been overburdened transporting munitions of war, or the bureaucracy, which must receive its sop from the sales of everything the people needed, had been working its game. At any rate, while Russia was surfeiting in provisions, there was a dearth of eatables in Petrograd. Crowds began to collect in the streets, and such places as were intended for the sale of food were surrounded. It seemed that everyone living in the capital was interested in what was going on. Then, regiments of soldiers were marched through the thoroughfares to positions to which they had been assigned. As they passed the crowds, they were cheered, and they answered the salutes good-naturedly, but their commanders remained rigid. The troops of the 10th Regiment, of which Sergei Savanovich was a captain, were ordered to attack a number of labourers who had revolted. The colonel, having drawn them up in line, gave the order to aim and was about to follow it with the word, FIRE! when Captain Ivanovich stepped out before the soldiers and said, Soldiers, if you fire on these men, who are simply demanding bread that is denied them by the bureaucracy, you shall first kill me. There were sounds of the dropping of the butts of rifles along the line. First a few, then an increase, followed by hundreds together. 
Then the workmen advanced and shook hands with the soldiers, and the crisis had passed. The events of that memorable day followed in rapid succession, and the next day it was announced that the long line of Russian rulers, including so many despots, Ivan the Terrible, Catherine, whose immoral character had so stained the imperial ermine, have for the first time been broken, if not ended. Stefan Mikhailov, who went to sleep at his home the night before the revolution, did not awaken till the next afternoon. He was aroused by shouts and cheers without. Going to a window, he saw a large concourse of people standing in the street looking up at his house. Raising the sash, he bent forward and, looking down, saw that the centre of the crowd's attraction was an officer in uniform standing on the landing of the steps leading up to the front door. While the crowd waved hats and handkerchiefs, the officer was bowing his acknowledgments. Mikhailov, having been clothed, was sufficiently presentable to go downstairs to learn what all this meant. He was met by his daughter. "'Who is the officer without?' he asked. "'Sergius Ivanovich.' "'And why is the crowd cheering him?' "'Because, Papa, while you have been asleep, there has been a revolution. The turning point came when Sergius's regiment was ordered to fire on some workmen. It was at an aim, ready to mow down the rebels, when Sergius stood between the regiment and the workmen and told the soldiers that if they fired on men who were simply demanding bread denied them by the bureaucracy, they must first kill him. That turned the scale. The workmen and the soldiers fraternised, and from that moment regiment after regiment took the part of the people. Mari's last words were drowned by a prolonged cheer without. Captain Ivanovich turned and entered the house. The crowd dispersed. Ivanovich seeing Mikhailov, paused. "'He came to see me, Papa,' said Maria, "'and the crowd followed him here.' "'It appears,' said Mikhailov to the captain, "'that while I have been sleeping, the revolution has taken place, "'and you have performed no small part of it.' "'He stepped in at the crisis,' said Maria, "'and brought the soldiers to espouse the cause of the people.' "'You mean I turned my regiment to the cause of the people?' said Sergius modestly. Mikhailov advanced to Ivanovich, and, putting both arms about him, kissed him, according to the Russian custom, first on one cheek, then on the other. End of section 23